Just be quiet for a second and listen. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And there's something about Susan's word. Um, earlier, when I was at Gaithersburg, um, as we were ending the worship and we were um, worshiping in the last song, God showed me a picture of somebody worshiping with their hands out like this. And the water filled the gymnasium to the point where it was coming up to their armpits. And I just feel like there's a new season coming for your church. The, the water level is going to rise. And I feel like, Susan, with your word, the question I had was, okay, if the bridegroom is prepared with sword in hand in full regalia, what does the bride look like? And uh, actually, initially, the bride came with uh, loins girded in regalia um, and with a sword in hand. And she was buff. And I was like, that doesn't look right. <laughs> but Jesus smiled and laughed, took the sword and, went and said, I'm the one that's fighting. And then he put this white linen gown on her. She was ready. And I feel like there's something that you guys have a role to play in here in Frederick in terms of getting the bride prepared, the righteous deed of the saints. And I think that there are people in this room, you guys are bought in, but a little bit on the back foot wondering, well, what are the implications? I see that the Lord is doing stuff here. What are the Im implications if I come in? And I, I really love Marsha's word about that the little children come to me. And I feel like if you lean in and you come forward into all that God has for you as individuals and as a church, it's not going to feel like a fight. It's not going to feel like a war. He is going to do it. He is going to accomplish it. He is going to clothe you with these fine linens out of that Revelation passage. Okay. you can open up your Bibles to Titus 1, and I'm going to read Titus 1, 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Why are you in Frederick? Why are you gathered here today to, to worship God? And there may be a lot of different reasons that have brought you here. If you're new, if you're uh, somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus yet, um, there may be a lot of different reasons. But the reason why this church exists here in the city of Frederick is to do exactly this. This is Paul's apostolic exhortation to Titus. There's been a church planted there, and he's got to leave. But he leaves a true child of the faith in Titus behind, 
and says, this is what you need to do. And you know, the church exists out of the apostolic impetus that started way back with the early church, and it continues on today. And with each iteration, it happened at Gaithersburg, and it's gonna happen here as well. You guys have a mission that you're on to put into order the things that are in Frederick and to appoint elders in every town. Whether it's in Frederick, whether it's beyond in Maryland or across the Eastern seaboard. And you know, this passage is the passage out of which God spoke to me uh, when I came forward. And I said, Lord, what do you have for me? There's gotta be more, you've been so good to me, there's more. Let me come forward and you show me what it is that I'm supposed to do. And I get to Thailand, it was hard getting a team of 18 people over there, and it was hard to get my family adjusted, and I was on my knees and I said, okay, Lord, we've, we're here now. What, what is it that you want us to do? And he spoke to me out of this passage, and it's just simple, ordinary Christian things. It's not an extraordinary thing that only special Christians do. It's actually something that the church, all of us together, the priesthood of all believers, are supposed to engage in. We're supposed to evangelize, we're supposed to make disciples, we're supposed to raise up elders, and we're supposed to plant churches. And you guys have planted a church in the middle of a pandemic. So I know I'm, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir. And so I, on the one hand, I say, good job. On the other hand, I say, keep going. There's more. There's going to be a multitude. When I first went over to Thailand, I heard this. The only kind of context that I had about church planning and disciple making was Southern California. And we had seen churches planted in a matter of two years, three years. And so I thought, you know what? Moved over to Thailand, I'm gonna plant a church. It's gonna be this amazing multiplying church. And then after three years time, I'll be able to get out of Dodge. I'll be done. Now, fast forward to now, almost five years, and it feels like we're just getting started. You know, the first two years were really hard, adjusting to life in a new context, learning a new language, trying to get people adjusted, trying to uh, gather people for the first time. And you know, when I first got this message from Titus, I didn't realize what the timing implications were. But later on, I found out that Titus remained in Crete for 40 years. The church was planted in around 64 AD, and he stayed there until he was 94 years old. He died, he was buried there. And when I found that out, I was like, oh my goodness, how long do you want me to be in Chiang Rai, Lord? I do miss uh, the In-N-Out burgers in California and Chipotle and all those wonderful things. But I still feel very called to do this thing of planting churches in every pocket of Thailand that God would lead us into. And actually I went to this missionary training. We didn't really get any formal training like that. We went and I remember the trainer there, he's a missionary who's been in Thailand for 30 years. He said, well, everybody go around and say what it is that you're here to do. And there's some people that said, hey, I'm here for business's mission. There were some people that said, I'm here to fight human trafficking. And then he asked me and I said, yeah, I wanna see a church planted in every single village in Chiang Rai province. And all the other people in the room, they just looked at me and I thought, yes, these people are amazed by my face. What a wonderful thing. Their visions are small. But here I've showed up a real missionary and I'm the one that's gonna be accomplishing it. It turns out that they were laughing in their heads and were wanting to be polite because I didn't know this until later, but there are 1,751 villages in 
Chiang Rai province in the northern part of Thailand where we are. And I did the math at that time when I found that. I thought, okay, wait, if I spend three years in each of those villages and I'm able to plant a church, then I only need to be here about 5,200 years <laughs> in order to be able to accomplish this, this mission. And you know, it, it was interesting because about two and a half years ago, we had this amazing opportunity. And I love that the words are just flowing that God speaks to this community. Because through similar types of experiences of hearing prophetically from God, we had an opportunity to um, actually take this person who was uh, the maid at our ministry property, and God said very clearly that she was supposed to be an evangelist. And so we um, sent her uh, to this village. It's called Yafu. It's a, it's a rural village about 40 minutes away from where we are in Chiang Rai. And it's a place where it doesn't have electricity. People are still living in wood huts. And because of what God had spoken to me about her, and because of what God had spoken to her, we ended up doing a Christmas outreach for the first time. And sh shortly thereafter, people started coming to faith. And it's this people group that were traditionally an unreached people group. They are people that are uh, very much unreached. A lot of them haven't heard the gospel yet. They used to be violently opposed to the gospel. And in fact, two years prior to us going there, there were two evangelists who were murdered and sent down a hill. They were martyred for their faith. And uh, so when this started happening, I was like, finally, Lord, this is amazing. And thought, okay, well, this is the one out of the 1700. Uh, it's going to save me some time. But, you know, one of the things that um, I realized is that it's actually really difficult to disciple me, and especially in the context that we find ourselves and I don't know what the context is like here. What is Frederick like? I don't know if you guys are actually Frederick residents or you guys are people that are coming and commuting from other areas. But what are the people like? Is it an easy context? Is it a, a difficult context? The thing that was a problem for us about a year ago when I would go to the, the, the village and the church as they gathered to worship on Sundays and you know, about 20 people gathered pretty quickly and then it became 45. But what I noticed was that primarily the people who were coming were women and children and older people and people that were marginalized, disabled people, widows and people like that. And I just asked this question, where are the men? Because actually, if I'm going to do the thing that God is asking me to do, I'm going to have to see some men come to faith so that I can disciple them so that they can be made into an eldership to lead that church that God has formed here. But what I realized is that the men in particular are really poorly behaved. So uh, much of them, like in these villages, maybe 70 to 80% of the people are drug addicts. And meth, to just get one hit of meth in that village, uh, it's actually cheaper than beer. It only costs about 60 cents to get meth. And so if you go kind of um, in the afternoon around 4 o'clock when people are getting off of work, this whole village, and you'll see grandmas and grandparents, moms and men, they're all high. They're trying to get over the stress of their workday. And, um, you know, it just reminded me of this passage in, in Titus 1, starting at verse 12. And it says, The Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Wow, Paul, tell us how you really feel <laughs> about the people there. 
And, and so just give you an example of, of why it's so challenging to try to disciple people like that. So there are two men. There's an older man and a younger man, father and son. The father actually grew up in a situation where his dad died from AIDS when he was five years old. So he grew up without a father, was a somewhat, he's known in the village as a liar and an angry guy, a drunk and a drug addict and somebody who will steal as well. And so we're taking this guy who's raised the son who's not very different than his father, who's also um, a drug addict. But they saw the amazing thing that God was doing in this village in the lives of the people that became Christian there and said, hey, we want to be Christian too, and we want to get off the drugs. So we helped them. It took about six months to get them in a prayer-only rehabilitation program. And then, you know, we had done some research, and if they come back and go back into their villages and start hanging out with their friends, it's going to be a problem. They're going to go right back into the drug use. And so we said, hey, we're going to offer you guys housing. You guys can come stay with us. We'll feed you. We'll educate you. We'll teach you Thai because they were illiterate in the, own, the, the language uh, of their nation. Uh, and we'll give you some job skills and we'll get you on your feet. Uh, that way, you know, you have something to do in the day. You can have some money. You can provide for our family. And, we can, um, and, and you can proceed in glorifying God through your life. What I realized is that the drug use had actually done substantial amount of damage in their brains and they couldn't remember things that we were teaching them day to day. We would teach them something, they would forget the next day. They kept taking their motorbikes and they would go get drunk and crash and they would go back up to the mountains to be able to visit their uh, family members. And when I would say, hey, what is this? You're not being very grateful for the things that we're doing. Why don't you guys kind of get your act together? And they said, hey, we don't like just being here and just learning about Christian things. We want to work, we want to work every day. So I said, fine, there's something valid about that. There's dignity that comes from working. So why don't you come and work at this restaurant? I know that you guys don't have a lot of skills. You'll just be washing dishes. But this proved to be too hard for them. They would get tired. They would miss shifts. They would often show up late. And uh, you know, we told them, uh, you can't do this. Maybe in the villages you can do that, but you can't do this here. And the owners were getting upset. And I'd have to talk to them and say, hey, can you just please give them another chance? One time, the guy had a fight with one of, the, one of the employees and ended up taking off to the village. And so I drove up there. I didn't want him to go back to drug use um, and was able to um, bring him back. But at the end of the day, um, both of them decided, hey, this is not just for us, and we have to go to the village. And it was really difficult for us, all of that investment, all that pouring out that we had done in their lives only to see, it seemed like um, it was all, uh, all a waste. Um, but actually the younger guy decided, uh, you know what, like after he went back to the village, he realized there's just nothing but darkness here, there's no hope here. I need to go back, I need to go back to Pastor Dan and I need to find a job again. So he came back and thankfully he's still with us and he's still uh, working. And so that's something that we're really grateful for. But the reality is that um, it's just is really hard to disciple people. And some of you guys who have been in ministry, who have, uh, or even leading small groups, how challenging it can be. And I don't know what the unique circumstances uh, are here. And it just reminded me of this passage out of Colossians 1, uh, 24 to 29. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. There's something about this passage where he says, I have to toil and I have to struggle and I have to um, uh, suffer. And it takes all the energy 
that God powerfully works in me to be able to do it for the goal of presenting everyone mature in Christ in preparing the bride for that wedding feast, for that wedding day. It takes toil, it takes struggle, and um, it takes energy to be able to do that. And you know, I just wanna honor PJ and Ashley. I was able to honor them at Gaithersburg as well. I've been doing this for five years. Being a corporate litigator and trial lawyer was actually much easier than what I'm doing now. And I can't believe that this couple has been doing it for 25 years plus. Just absolute heroes. And you know, actually, when Paul is writing this passage, he's talking about filling up in his flesh the suffering or the afflictions that are lacking in, Christ's, in Christ in terms of what he wants to do for his bride. And we have the privilege of being able to do that on his behalf. It's an amazing privilege. Now, for Paul, it was actually being beaten, it was being stoned, it was being shipwrecked, just things that were coming against him physically. But I feel like for us, I mean, maybe that stuff doesn't happen here in Maryland. But although the kind of anti-Christian sentiments in the country maybe might come to that point at, uh, at some point in the future. But what are the ways that we actually have to be willing to suffer in the flesh, fill up in our flesh, the suffering that Christ wants to endure for the church. Yeah. And I will tell you that for me, uh, it's not physical beating. Thailand is a, a little bit more of a restrictive place than it is here. But actually the part of the flesh that suffers for me is some of it is just being away. You know, my, the reason why we're visiting the States right now is because my dad's on hospice care. I haven't been able to be in his life. Um, my mom, she recently had to get a biopsy on her throat and she's aging, still taking care of my father. My brother had uh, a heart condition and had four stents put in his heart last November and I wasn't able to be here for him. He went through a really hard time. My kid, the youngest one that we have, Joseph, he came and he doesn't know his grandparents. And so he said, hey, you wanna go spend a night at grandma and grandpa's house? And he didn't wanna go. He said, well, do grandma and grandpa live in America? Um, they were strangers, and he's in a, a foreign country. And, you know, just most recently, uh, realizing with my daughter's journey of graduating high school and going to college, and her options are limited. I've had to tell her, I'm sorry, but daddy doesn't make enough money to pay for your college. You're going to have to figure out a way to do that yourself. You're going to have to get a scholarship. Um, that, those are some of the things that uh, I have to bear in the flesh. What are the ways that the Lord is asking you to fill up in your flesh for the sake of his kingdom and for his glory. Who are the Cretans that you're called to? You know, at Gaithersburg, after I preached, this lady came up to me and one lady said, I think it's my brother. The Cretan in my life is my brother. He's kind of <laughs> walked away from the faith. I had one lady who said, it's my neighbor. And during the pandemic, I've kind of had to shut myself away from my neighbor. And I think that's who God's calling me to. It might be an area of town. It might be a pocket of town. Do you guys have Cretans in your life? Do you guys have Cretans in Frederick? People that are unlovable, people that are disobedient misfits. And you're saying, hey, that's how the world views them. And maybe in a lot of ways, that's a real testimony about them, 
but it doesn't matter. I feel like I am supposed to forsake my flesh in order to be able to go and suffer for them and loving them and being able to communicate the gospel to them. And, you know, especially in this pandemic, like everybody, even in Thailand where, you know, we didn't have that many deaths, but everybody just became a little bit depressed. They became insular. They stayed home. They started to just care about themselves. They didn't care about what was happening. I mean, we kind of read on the news about running out of toilet paper. Come on, that's, that's ridiculous. Yeah. How much toilet paper do you need? Personal question. Yeah. Eric needs a lot. Are you willing to suffer for someone else? Are you willing to bear suffering in your flesh in order to be able to love someone, be able to communicate all the excellencies of Jesus to them? And are you willing to love the most unlovable? And you know, the Cretan story is actually a, a very good story in the end because Titus, God bless him, to the age of 94, he was there, he was faithful, and who knows what he poured out, but he was successful. And so in uh, 250 AD, there was a persecution by this emperor named uh, Decius, and there were 10 Christians from six different cities from all of the island of Crete who uh, were tortured for 30 days to see if they would renounce Jesus and believe in their idols. But when they wouldn't, they were beheaded. And they are described by the churches there as the glory of Crete. And so it's an amazing story. Paul plants this little fledgling church in 64 AD. Titus faithfully serves there for 40 years, making disciples and planting churches. And then 150 years thereafter, actually they were still healthy and vibrant churches. They were still faithful Christians who were willing to die for the sake of Jesus Christ. So don't think about your immediate life. The thing about sacrificing things for the kingdom means that it's not even just 150 years. But you think about what that wedding day is going to look like and how the bride will look when we are presented to the bridegroom. How much of a part do you want to have in that? And, you know, I just have faith and I trust that what happened in Crete, it's still the same God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That he's going to do the same thing in Thailand and all over Asia. And that he's going to do it here in Maryland. He's going to do it here in Frederick through you guys as well. I really trust uh, that that's what's going to happen. But, you know, the challenge is not actually doing it. And we can grit our teeth and we can gird our loins and we can come with swords and say, hey, we're going to fight. We're going to do this. Uh, but actually, the thing about Paul, what he's talking about is that in the middle of all that struggle, in the middle of all that toil, in the middle of all that hardship, that we have to be a people who are rejoicing, that we're celebrating as Jesus is preparing us for the wedding day, as we are coming down the aisle. And the reason why we're able to do that is because, as I read earlier, there is this um, blessed hope that we have. In, um, or maybe I didn't read that. Yeah. So it's actually, it's actually Titus 2, 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, 
the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. It's actually something that is not up to us and what we can do. Actually, if you read that passage, it's all what Jesus is going to do in us and through us. Because the, the, the grace of God has come in its fullness and it's bringing salvation to all people and we just need to submit to his will and his use of us. And this idea of this blessed hope, that although the fullness of grace has already appeared, actually we are awaiting the appearance of the fullness of the glory of Jesus Christ. This, this bridegroom in all of his regalia who's gonna put everything back into proper order as he rules and reigns as the king of kings forever and ever. And actually the line from um, Joshua's song, this line that uh, now every hardship is wrapped in glory. I mean, just think about that. If you're going through a hard time right now, um, if you're going through a hard season, just think about this idea that we have this blessed hope of waiting for the fullness of the glory of God to appear. And because of that, actually, it's not just that we're gonna be able to endure through these sufferings and hardships, but because it's wrapped up in his glory, it means that we are going to be thankful, we're going to celebrate, we're gonna praise God that we endured these sufferings and these hardships, because we know that it's ultimately gonna be good for our, it's gonna be good for us, and it's gonna be good for the glory of God. Yeah. And uh, you know, I just wanna close with this, um, Titus 3, three to five. How, how do we do it? How, how is it that the gospel empowers us to be able to continue to maintain hope, this blessed hope? How is it that we can be different than the rest of the world and have joy as we endure hardships and suffering, as we eagerly await the appearance of Jesus' glory in his fullness? And it's back to this thing that his grace has been given to us in full already. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by men and hating one another. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. He saved us. Where would you be if his grace hadn't appeared? His goodness hadn't appeared. His loving kindness hadn't appeared to save you. Because the reality is, we can always identify the Cretans that are out there, but we ourselves were the Cretans. And Jesus, seeing us in our humble state, said, I'm not gonna leave them as they are, and it's gonna cost me everything. My body is gonna have to be broken, my blood is gonna have to be shed, I'm gonna have to pour myself out, I'm gonna have to empty myself completely, I'm gonna have to suffer in order that I might have these Cretans for myself, and having washed them in my blood, and then to present them to myself for the sake of their good and for my glory. This is what King Jesus did for us. And it's the only thing that can fuel us as we seek his will, as we seek to do the things that he's calling us to do. Amen?